There once was a man who had two sons, the younger of which did something inappropriate to secure the inheritance, and once he had it, he quickly fled off to a faraway land. And in this land, he serves a harsh man who takes advantage of the son and treats him no better than a slave. And in this far land, the son decides that he wants to return back home. But he worries about how he'll be accepted, by how he'll be accepted by the man he has offended. And so he decides to come back, asking the one who he has offended to accept him back only as a servant. But there's a surprising turn in the story when the man he has offended runs to him, falls on his neck, and kisses him. All right, you know a Bible story I'm talking about, right? Some of you are nodding your heads. Yeah, so you know I'm talking about the story of Jacob and Esau. Every fact that I just told you in this story is true for both the story of the prodigal son and the story of the reunion of Jacob and Esau. When I, somebody had said something about this before, I'm like, yeah, there are some parallels. And the more I started looking to him, I'm like, this is too weird. Like, there's a ton of stuff going on here. And I felt like one of those people, he's in one of those movies where you have somebody's like into some sort of weird theories and you go into the room and you realize they're crazy because they've got strings in the walls and maps with the little pins in it. Like, that's how I felt. I kept just reading this stuff. I'm like, this is too strange. So there's two things I want you to see tonight. Two answers, two questions I want to answer. Are these parallels a coincidence? Now, I'm convinced they're not a coincidence. Well, I mean, one, because this would be an awkwardly short sermon if it was. <laughs> but the second is, there are just way too many of these parallels. The more I read this, like, this is too strange. For example, there's a speech in which Jacob goes off on his father-in-law Laban. And that speech looks weirdly like the, the speech that the older son in the story of the prodigal son gives to his father. Right? Both will complain that you never gave me an animal and you treated me like a slave. And the, the response from the fathers in this case is also weirdly similar. Like Laban responds to Jacob's speech. He says, everything you have is mine. But the prodigal son's father, his, he says, but son, everything I've ever had is yours. Now it's similar, though it's reversed. And there's, there's other things, like in both accounts, there's a charge of wealth being wasted. Now I knew that that was, existed in the prodigal son story, but I didn't realize that was in the Genesis account as well. There's also a claim of people being treated like a foreigner. Remember, the prodigal son is not in Israel. He's there with pigs. There's gifts given between the offender and the offended, though the direction is reversed. In both cases, a father pursues the wayward son, though in one case, he seems to imply to do him harm. In the other case, he wants to bring him back. In both cases, there are feasts that are, occur related to the reunion of the father and son. And there are only two places in the entire Bible where somebody running and falling on the neck of somebody else occurs together, both in the story of the prodigal son and the story of the reunion of Jacob and Esau. So I don't think these, these parallels are coincidence. And that brings us to the second question. If not, what's the point? Well, why did Jesus retell this story? And so after thinking about this for a long time and writing pages and pages of possible theories, here's the one that I came to. So if you're going to take a nap, you can take a nap after I say this. Which is, I think Jesus is retelling the story of Jacob and Esau, but he's telling it with a better reunion, with, between a better father because the prodigal's father, he forgives deeper, he gives more, and as a result, he builds a better relationship because he shows a better kind of love. And I think that's the key element, that rain is coming at a totally awkward time. 
And when you see this, you'll see this is why Jesus in his story has the prodigal's father, who's the victim, he gives gifts to the victimizer. That's not the right direction. It's supposed to be the other way around. In Jacob and Esau's story, that actually is how it works. So Jacob, who's the victimizer, gives back to Esau. Also, that's why the prodigal's father tells his son, "This everything I've ever had is yours. Like I, this is a father who gives all. That's unlike Laban, who's a man who takes. He says, but everything you've had is mine. So he set him a contrast there. And think of it this way. Imagine there's two stories, and if one of these stories shows a better love. In the first story, the son comes back after doing what, what the prodigal son has done, and he says, Dad, I feel terrible that I took that million dollars from you and went to that far country. But in that far country, I invested it and I made myself multiple million dollars. So here's all the money back, paid with interest. Do you forgive me? And you can imagine the father saying, well, son, you know, I, I didn't approve of the way you left, but you know you made something of yourself, so I forgive you. Welcome home. That's the first story. Here's the second story. The son comes back and says, Dad, I feel terrible about taking that millions of dollars from you. And I lost every penny. In fact, I can't even take care of myself anymore. Do you forgive me? And then the father says, I love you, son, and it was never about the money at all. And so you don't have to pay it off. And I'll even give you more to put you back on your feet. Welcome home. That second story shows a story of a better love. The first one looks more like the Genesis account, but the second one looks more like the, the story in Luke 15. And the reason Jesus is doing this is he's, he tells this account because of the Pharisees. But the Pharisees are complaining. He why do you eat with these sinners? And Jesus is trying to make a single fool, both of these people. And I, I think there's something in the context. These sinners are people who are changing their minds. They have a past, but they're trying to change. And Jesus is saying he's trying to bring them together. And the Pharisees are saying, like, you need to ignore the struggling children. Why are you eating with them? And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You've got you to give the most attention to the struggling children. And so what I want to do here tonight, I want to look at the story of Jacob and Esau and compare it with the story of the prodigal son. And we need to do two things. One, to point out the similarities. That tells us that Jesus actually is retelling the story. There's two, you have to see how many similarities there are. But once you see the similarities, then you need to start paying attention to the differences because that means that Jesus has purposely changed the story. And the changes are what tells you why he has modified the story. Now, I've preached on Luke 15 before, so I'm not going to repeat that. We will go through a brief summary of Luke 15 just in case you haven't read it recently. If you read the story of the prodigal son, it's told in three parts. First, the first part is treachery. So it's told about, and then the second part is the far country. So the first part is this treachery, which causes the son to leave. Then he goes to the far country. So then it explains the far country, and then it brings him back home to see how the people will respond to him. It starts off, Jesus says, it's a story of a man who has two sons. Now the younger tries to get the inheritance. And now fathers, this is not how this is supposed to work. Right? The, the son is the one who starts the conversation. That's not how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be the father started it. You go through the Old Testament, this is consistently how it works. And if you read things like the Talmud, which post-date the New Testament, they say that's how it works. And so he does this. He's basically breaking the rules. And then he leaves for a far country. In the far country, he, the wealth winds up being wasted. So he squanders it. As a result of a famine, he becomes distressed. 
And he winds up serving this harsh man. And the account says that he serves him and he gives him nothing. Like I used to think he was, saying he was giving the same things the pigs say, but it actually says that no one gave him anything. So he then decides, he's like, I am going to die out here. So he, he says, I'm going to go back home. He works up a speech. His speech contains three parts. First, he says, I, I'm going to tell my father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Two, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And three, take me back as your servant. Now, you see, the first two are different than the third, because the first two are contrition, and the third one is a, a request. Now, he's going to drop the request when he actually gets to his father. And you're kind of stuck with this lingering question was, is he just trying to butter up his father? And then he gets to the request. Is it really all about that request? And actually, the context, I think, kind of clarifies that, because it says that he's not going back because there's a hole in his heart, but a hole in his stomach. He's saying he's going to starve out there. Now, eventually, he drops the request when he sees his father excitedly running to him. So I kind of think that's where the repentance fully takes place. So then he goes back. He wants to return back home. And he worries about how he's going to be accepted. He works up his speech. And then the surprise is that the father sees him afar off, runs to him, falls at his neck, and kisses him. Possibly at the edge of town. And then the father gives him the best robe. He gives him shoes. He gives him a ring. He kills the fatted calf, and he throws him a party. And so gifts are given. Though the gifts are given to the victimizer in this case, the offender, not the offended. At that point, the older son enters the story. Remember, it's a story of a man with two sons. And the older son finds out what's going on, and he hears the sound of the party, and he is enraged. And that's when he gives this speech. He's like, how dare you? Right? This, this son of yours, that's how he words it. And, and then he complains about how, you never gave me an animal, and you treated me like a slave. And that's when the father says, but everything I've ever had is yours. The father's always been sharing it. And my theory, my thesis is that if you had never heard the story of the prodigal son before, so you were sitting back at, like listening to Jesus say this, that when Jesus says this, you would have thought back to the story of Jacob and Esau. So I thought, how can I test this? I have a science degree, so we think about how do we test this? And I don't have a time machine yet, so we're still working on that. But, so how do I test this? Well, it turns out, I started looking around, I'm like, well, surely somebody who grew up in Judaism has never read Luke 15, that there's a count of somebody doing it. And I lucked out. So this video is the guy on the left is a follower of Jesus, and the guy on the right is a follower of Judaism. And this guy who's a follower of Judaism doesn't, has never read the story of the prodigal son before. So this is totally fresh to him. So he's got the Judaism background. He doesn't have the Jesus background. And I'm skipping a lot of it, but he has a discussion with him. He says, just, just read it. Tell me what you think. And he pretty much, his analysis is pretty much dead on. What's interesting is he does exactly what I expected. He connects it back with the Jacob and Esau, Esau story. Although it's interesting because he actually extends it to other ones. He says, it goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Okay, this is a story of two, two brothers who over perceived favoritism, don't act like brothers, or one doesn't act like a brother, and then one winds up fleeing to a far country. Remember, Cain goes east of Eden. Jacob and Esau is also a story about so-called favoritism, People not acting like true brothers, and then leading to a far country. Then there's Joseph and his brothers, right? Starts off with favoritism. They don't act like brothers. Turns out throwing your brother into a pit is not a good example of brotherly love. And then Joseph goes to a far country. And that's the story of the prodigal son with those three elements. So I'm, I'm going to suggest that most people would have heard this the same way that this guy could have heard the message. He, he does read a little bit of in Hebrew, but it's really not relevant. Okay, let's take a listen. We're talking about the extremely complex child-parent relationship dynamic 
We're talking about another very strong dynamic over here that's, that is bolded in this story. That is the two brothers together. But that is the dynamic of the entire Bible. From Cain and Abel. Yes. Well, certainly the whole book of Genesis is all two brothers at once. And, and the story here, it, it, uh, it's almost, I'm putting, taking another story and, and putting it over and, and uh, aligns exactly, is the story of Joseph and his brothers. Yes. yes. And so right here, Joseph came back, and, well, here he came back, but what happened to Joseph in the beginning of the Joseph story? What did his father give him? And so you see that if the way he's reading this is that Genesis is an account of a lot of broken relationships. And I think Jesus' story, the prodigal son, is a story that tells you how you can actually repair this sort of mess. And if you go, as we look through the story of Jacob and Esau, we look at this history, what you're going to see is that it has a ton of these broken relationships, a lot of these estrangements. For example, so we take, we have a group of people, and then we have the, the other side of the people over in Haran, in the far country. And if you start documenting these relationships in this, these few chapters, you see that, first of all, there's a problem with Isaac and Rebecca. Okay, Rebecca works against her own husband to, tr to work against his wishes for how the birthright's going to go. Okay, that, that is not. That's a serious problem. And it's because she prefers one son and he prefers the other. Jacob and Esau, the story's going to end with Esau wanting Jacob dead. Then Jacob eventually goes to that far land. He has a relationship with Laban, who winds up being his father-in-law, but that relationship winds up collapsing. Not only that, but Jacob marries Leah and then marries Rachel, but the truth is he never wanted Leah. And Leah knows that. And she feels that. And so that relationship is broken. Laban's relationship then breaks with Rachel and Leah, and they say he treats us like a foreigner. And then Rachel and Leah's relationship continues to degrade as they both try to vie for their husband's love. And, and if you understand this, and I think it makes more sense why Jacob, later on in, in his life, in Genesis chapter 47, verse 9, he says, the years of my life have been few and painful. I mean, this is it's a history of chaos in his family. 
much of which he had started. Now, if you go back into the story and you read the Genesis account, way back in Genesis 25, it gives you a hint on how the whole Jacob Esau story is going to go. And it happens before they're even born. So they're twins. And Rebecca says that it feels like they're fighting inside. So much that she's like, I don't even know if I want to be pregnant. So this gives you a hint. The author's telling you the story is not going to go well. Esau then is described in that same chapter as being, it, it, well, describes him up to Jacob. And it says, it describes Esau, and then it says, but... Jacob was an even-tempered man. Okay, so Jacob, he's the even-tempered one. What's that make Esau? Well, Esau turns out as the impulsive one. Now, if you, if you view Esau as impulsive, kind of hot and cold, back and forth, it, that's going to explain a lot of the, the things that he does. In fact, it is this impulsiveness that Jacob leverages to get the birthright in the first place. And this will explain other things of how Jacob talk, treats him. Okay, so we start off the account in Genesis chapter 27 with treachery. So that story starts off with a man and his two sons. Now Isaac thinks he's dying. Turns out he doesn't actually call this right. He lives quite a bit longer than he thinks, but he thinks he's dying. So he begins a conversation about the blessing. Rebecca finds out about it, but she doesn't want it to go to Esau. She wants to play it to her favorite, Jacob. And she says, go out, kill, kill the goat and, and put it on your arm so you can trick Isaac. Isaac can't see, so if he feels the hairy arms, he's going to assume it's Esau. So she tells him to do this. And Jacob goes along with it. The ruse works, and Isaac winds up blessing the younger one, Jacob. And Esau doesn't know anything about this. Esau comes back, and he's like, here I am. And Isaac's like, what do you mean? And it, the text says it's filled with emotion. It says he starts shaking violently because he realizes this didn't work. Right? He didn't bless the right one. And this blessing sticks. There's no way to take this back. And Esau just complains to him. He's like, what, what, what did you do? Like, and look, at, look in chapter tw Genesis 27, verse 34. You can see how, how much of this is filled with emotion. Chapter, 30, or chapter 27 and verse 34. He says, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me eat also, O my father. He asks him three times, well, give me a something. You've got to have something left. You've got to give me something. He says this in verse 34. He says this in verse 36. He says this in verse 38. Finally, Isaac decides to give him a blessing. I'm going to read you the blessing, but look at this blessing. Honestly, it's not very good. Most of it sounds like a curse. Starts in verse 39. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said, Behold, away from the fatness shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you go restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Most of it's bad. You're going to be away from the richness of the earth. You're going to be away from the dew of heaven. And he only says this, but, but you'll eventually break this yoke at some point. And so he gets this kind of a second-class, well, at best, second-class blessing. And Esau's infuriated, and he says, once Isaac dies, Jacob dies. I'm going to take him out. He's going to wait till Isaac goes, and then he's going to take out Jacob. Now, Rebecca knows that Esau is impulsive, and she says, okay, Jacob, you need to go. Okay, you need to go. You need to leave. And you need to let him cool down. And so she works it out where he's going to go and get a wife, go over and inherit. Now, that's part of the ruse. He's going to probably do this anyways, but this is why the timing is right. That leads to chapter 28. So Isaac sends Jacob to Haran. And so that's where you see the, the leaving for a far country. 
Meanwhile, though, Esau finds out that Jacob was sent, and he realizes that he has obeyed. That is, he's going to go marry a non-Canaanite. And so Esau's trying to compete for his father's love, and so Esau then marries a non-Canaanite. He's, it's not because he wants this woman. He's already been married. He doesn't want her. He actually wants the love of his father. Right? You see how broken this is. I can't imagine what it would be to be the wife in this case. And then we get to chapter 29. So Jacob meets Rachel, who is Laban's daughter. And at first, Laban seems like a pretty good guy. Laban, he runs and hugs and kisses him. Now, this lacks the whole falls on his neck part, which is unique to the later part of Genesis story and the prodigal son story. But Laban looks like a pretty good guy. And Jacob's going to wind up looking for, working for Laban. And Laban says, yeah, I want to pay you well. Like, I, want to, I want to do the right, do the right thing here. He does not in the end. And Jacob will later complain that Laban has changed his wages ten times. And he's complaining, so presumably not up. And then Jacob works for Rachel. Look down at verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you, Laban, seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, this is for the younger one. Usually, it's the older one supposed to be married first. He's, he wants the younger one. And so this is the deal. And instead, Laban gives him Leah. Now, what happens is he, he actually hides the fact that it's actually Leah until the marriage is done. He winds up consummating the marriage, and then in the morning figures out that, oh, it's the wrong woman. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I have all sorts of questions about how that could happen. So I have a perfectly, a very clear description that will answer everything about this. You just need to email me at lextalionis at reagan.com. Like, <laughs> if you don't know, that, that's not my email, so that's Tommy's email. Yeah, I don't know how that works, but anyways, that's what happened. And so then Jacob goes to Laban, he's like, how could you do this? This was the plan, seven years he worked for this. And Laban says, it isn't our custom to put the younger before the older. Now, I think this has an edge to it. Because that's exactly what Jacob did, right? He has flipped it on him. And so, it's almost like Laban saying, well, unlike you, we put the firstborn first. We don't do in our place what you did in yours. And so, the deceiver gets deceived, and Jacob gets what he gave. And then in verse 27, he then works for another seven years. Verse 27 says, Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other in return for serving me another seven years. And so like Luke 15, you have this guy who's serving somebody who takes advantage of someone, who's a harsh man and takes advantage of the son. Now things go downhill. Chapter 30. There's a competition for love. Rachel and Leah are competing for the love of their husband. And Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah, and Leah knows it. When she has her first kid in chapter 29, verse 32, she says after having the first child, she's like, surely my husband will love me now. She thinks the child will get her husband to love her. After having the second child in verse 33, she mentions again being in love. And then in chapter 29, verse 34, one verse later, after having the third child, she says, at last, my husband will be attached to me. And in chapter 30, Leah says to Rachel, she's like, I have wrestled with my sister and have won. Right? Wrestled for the love of her husband. And then in, in chapter 30, verse 15, Leah will try to buy herself intimacy with her own husband. I mean, this is how messed up this relationship is. And then you get to chapter 31. 
Now his, Jacob's relationship with Laban starts to fall apart, and Rachel and Leah's relationship with, her, with their father falls apart. In the intervening years, Jacob has become wealthy, and Laban is becoming jealous of this. And in verse 1 and 2, he notes that his relationship with Laban is now broken. Verse 1, chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So he sees the relationship is collapsing. He also notes in verse 7 that Laban has been ripping him off. He keeps changing the terms of the deal. So it's not just with the marriage, it's with other things as well. And then we get down to verse 14 and 15. And here Rachel and Leah notice that their relationship with their father is breaking down. Verse 14 says, Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him, their father, as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has devoured our money. And so in this far country, you have serving a harsh man, and then you have wealth being wasted. This is precisely what they charge him with. And so Jacob leaves with his family. He doesn't tell Laban. Laban finds out that he's gone, and he pursues him. And if you keep reading in the text, it's clear that Laban is pursuing him, but he does not have good ends in mind. God warns him and says, okay, you, you stay clear of them. He's, again, why is God warning him? Because Laban does not have something positive. There's actually a subtext of violence throughout this. Then when he finally gets up to, to Jacob, verse 26, he says, you, he basically, he, he says that he kidnapped his daughters. Verse 26, and Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Right? So he's like, you kidnapped them. Okay, this is... This explains why he thinks he's, he's okay with coming to them with violence. And then he says, why did you do this? I wanted to know you were going to leave so I could throw you a party. Right, right. Okay, I, I don't think that's, that's why. Okay. But that's what he says. He says that in verse 27. And then in verse 29, there's another veiled threat. In verse 29 it says, it is in my power to do you harm. But... The God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So Jacob explains, he's like, I, he, I was fearing you. I was fearing force. Jacob says this repeatedly in this set of chapters, and there's a lot of fear here. Laban then says, Also, you stole my idols. And Jacob's like, What are you talking about? I didn't take your idols. Well, Rachel did. Okay, he didn't know that. And so Laban starts going through the stuff, trying to find the idols. Now, this leads to a whole another question, because... Why did Rachel take the idols? And I just thought, well, you know, maybe is it because they're kind of into the idolatry aspect? And, you know, I have a theory, and I can't say that specifically the text says what I'm about to say perfectly, but I have to say it makes a lot of sense. I don't think they were stealing it because they Rachel wasn't thinking about idolatry. I think she was stealing it because she was trying to settle the score. Remember, Rachel and Leah said he's squandering the wealth that Jacob has been making. So if that's the case, you might be thinking, I'm going to take this idol. What are idols made of? But precious metals. And so I'm going to settle this, so I'm going to take that. And I'm going to kind of settle it. So Laban goes through the stuff, almost finds it. Again, there's more of a ruse to cover this up. He can't find it. And then Jacob goes off on Laban. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? 
And so he goes off on him. And Jacob goes on and he says, you know, when I was out there tending to your animals, anytime when your animals got killed, you didn't pay me back. I had to take the loss. You didn't give me an animal. And then he goes on, you had treated me like a slave. That's what he says in verse 41. Laban's response to this, he's like, all this is mine. Right, those are my kids. That's my stuff. This is mine. But, verse 44, he says, but let's make a covenant. And so they make a covenant. There's a meal. Meals are often associated with covenants. And then Jacob heads off for home. There's a lot of comparisons here with Luke 15. Jesus has made the prodigal's father everything that Laban should have been but was not. Remember the older son in the story of the prodigal son? He too claims that he was treated like a slave and his, anim- his father never gave him an animal. And that's exactly what Jacob claims that with Laban. And if you think about it, with that background, then the older son is basically claiming that the prodigal son's father is selfish like Laban, right? It's not fair. You didn't use this right. This is what his claim is. And you remember Laban's response. He tells Jacob, everything you have is mine. Now that's a reversal of the prodigal son's father who says he shares everything. So it's selfishness contrasted with selflessness. In the Genesis account, it is Laban, the one, who is wasting the wealth. Now, Jesus has transferred that to the prodigal son. The wasting wealth is still there, but he's moved it over to the prodigal son. And I think the reason that Jesus is doing this is he, he's trying to make the prodigal son situation worse so that he can make the prodigal son's father better. He's, he's extending that distance. He's making the contrast bigger. Rachel and Leah complain that they're treated like foreigners. Now remember the prodigal son, he's feeding pigs. He is not in Israel. He's in a foreign land being treated like a foreigner. And so that is related as well. Laban claims that he just wants to throw Jacob a party. And you know in context that does not seem likely. But the prodigal son's father actually does throw a party for the younger son. And then there's a covenant made between Laban and Jacob over a meal. Well, the prodigal son, his prodigal son's father declares peace over a meal that he throws. Now, if we keep going, we get to chapter 32. So this is where we get to the return. Jacob is worried about how he'll be accepted. And so he sends messengers forth to try to make things better for him when, he, when Esau finds out he's coming back. He does that in verse 3, but then in verse 6 it says that Esau is coming with 400 men. This does not look good. This looks like an army. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, David brings 400 men when he's going to go deal with Nabal after Nabal had disrespected David. This looks like an army. Now, this is filled with fear. And so, it's kind of like, you know, he, he had this issue with Laban pursuing him, and now he's got this issue, other issue, on the way going home. And in verse 7, it's, it notes here that Jacob was not just afraid, it says greatly afraid. In Genesis 32, verse 7, it says that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he goes on, he's going to do three things. One, he divides his camp into two groups. So what he says is, okay, camp one, you guys go down there. And camp two, you, you be some distance behind. Camp two, if you see camp one get slaughtered, camp two runs. Now, I don't know how they... You know, who picked the short straw to be in camp one, but I mean, this is what he was planning on doing. Second, he appeals to God out of his fear. And third, he sends forth multiple gifts. He keeps sending these messengers, bringing gifts to try to placate Esau. But there's something noteworthy here in verse 20. 
He's talking, Jacob here is explaining to these, these messengers what they're supposed to say. Verse 20, it says, And you shall say, moreover, your servant, Jacob, is behind us. Now remember, he's qualifying himself. He's telling Esau, I'm your servant now. So he's coming back as a lowly servant. And then it explains why Jacob is doing this. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So he thinks he's going to placate his brother. What's really weird is that if you take this word for appease, and you look at it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament... It's the exact same word that Paul uses in Romans 3.25 when he talks about Christ offering an atonement, which was intended to rebuild a relationship. And then things get a little bit weird. Then, you remember this is the part where Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. And after reading this in context, I think what may be happening here is that Jacob is running out of fear. He's, he's planning on going back, and then all of a sudden, the fear gets to him. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to take my wife, uh, I'm going to take my 11 kids, and I'm going to run for it. This would explain also why he crosses the river. It's how you hide your tracks. I mean, there's other cases in the Old Testament where they talk about crossing a river in order to hide their tracks. And so he's fleeing. Okay, here's the problem. He has to go back. God has told him repeatedly that you need to go back, and you're going to be fine. And then, so he's going back, and that's when an angel stops him, right? Wrestles him, and you wonder, well, what's going on with this whole wrestling thing? And somehow, whatever this happens here, gets Jacob to go back. But if you think about it, other accounts of angels, they show angels doing, killing thousands of people if they need to. An angel could have broke Jacob like a twig if he wanted to. Jacob winds up being successful. Why would Jacob be successful unless the angel is not there to kill Jacob? And Jacob figures this out. He figures this out that even God doesn't want me dead. If I could wrestle an angel, Esau's nothing. If you look like that, I think it makes some sense. And at the end of this, then, he goes back. That leads us to chapter 33. So Jacob sees Esau coming with his 400 men. He then arranges his kids in front, puts the children out in front, Perhaps is a sign to show that he means no harm. I mean, I, I think this is a questionable logic, but this is what he does. In verse 3, he says he bows seven times. He treats me like, I'm, I'm your servant. He, he refers to Esau as his Lord. And then there's a surprising turn in the story in verse 4. Chapter 33, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And then they wept. And Jacob keeps referring to himself as Esau's servant, just like the prodigal who came as a servant. And then they, just, they talk about the gifts that were given. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? The messengers he'd been sending ahead. And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now he's referring to Esau there. And so you have gifts being given. As he goes on, Esau plans to spend time with Jacob. He says, Come with me to Seir. And Jacob says, no, 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 you go ahead of me. My, my, my crew's a little bit slower, so you just go ahead. And then Esau's like, well, I'll, I'll leave behind some men to protect you. He says, no, 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 send them on ahead. And he says, I'm going to meet you over in Syria. He says this in verse 14. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. He's like, I'll meet you there. You just, you just go on ahead, I'll meet you there. But here's the thing. As it goes on, look what it says in verse 16. So Esau returned that way on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth. He ghosts him. 
But he says, I'll meet you there, and he doesn't go there. So either one of two things. Jacob does not really want a relationship with Esau. Or he's afraid of Esau's impulsive nature. Maybe he thinks Esau's all hot and cold. Right? That might explain when, when Esau's like, you know, I, I don't need these gifts. Just, just, just take them. No, I don't need them. Just take the goats. Right? Just take them. Because maybe he knows this is how Esau is. I don't know which one is the case. When you think about this in the context of Luke 15, you have Jacob, the offender, giving gifts to the offended. That is what it's supposed to work, right? I mean, this is how it works in law. But it is the father, the victim, who gives gifts in Luke 15. It's the opposite of what you should expect. And think about Jacob's story. Jacob's story is a rags-to-riches story. He got rich in the far country, but that is precisely the opposite of the prodigal son story in Luke 15, which is a riches-to-rags story. So Jesus has flipped it around. And you look at the logic, and it makes sense, because when Jacob gives back in chapter 33, verse 11, he says, please, to Esau, take my, my present. The Hebrew word for present is the same word for blessing. Okay, Jacob stole the blessing, and he's saying, like, I'm paying you back for what I have taken. But the prodigal can never return what he has taken. There's no way. I mean, you read that story. The prodigal's father is a wealthy man. They can kill a calf and, it, it, and feed a whole village. So he seems to be wealthy. This is a debt that he can never repay. And then there's that phrase, falls on his neck. So I looked through this, and I found that it only appears in two places where runs and falls on his neck, only, that combination only appears in two different places in the whole Bible which is the story of Jacob and Esau and the story of the prodigal son. Now, there are cases where the falls on neck appears. There are some similarities, but not entirely. For example, when Joseph meets Jacob again. What was a little bit weird, I was surprised because when I searched for the, searched for the, the, the Greek phrase initially, and it actually matched a non-canonical work. It's not, it's not in the Bible, but it's kind of a Bible-ish story. And that is the one of Tobit, which was kind of weird. So I, I had not read this before, so I went ahead and read it. And it's a story of a son reunion reuniting with his father, which has a lot of comparisons with other parts. But here's the thing. The story of Tobit and Tobiah is a story of a, a good son refinding his father and giving his father gifts. Now, that's an inversion of the prodigal son story, right? It's, it's a, which should be a, considered a bad son, and it is the father giving him gifts. And really, the Joseph-Jacob story, it's a story of a father and son being reunited, but Joseph eventually gives gifts to Jacob. Remember, their, their family needs food, and Joseph is able to deliver that, and he's a good son, which is also an inversion of that, of the Luke 15 story. And so when you understand this, you understand that Jesus has widened the gap between the, the prodigal and the prodigal's father. And in doing so, he makes the reception and the love from the father to be a greater one than the love that you see in these other accounts, including the one from Esau. And so the forgiveness of that father is exceptional and it is complete. I mean, that's why Jesus has him run to his son. You can just imagine him being out at the edge of town in his nasty clothes. His clothes are all torn up. He's about to make his walk of shame through the village. And his father runs out to him and covers him in new clothes. And when you look at the Jacob Esau story, you don't really see a real relationship after the fact. You see more of a ceasefire. Same thing with the Laban and Jacob story. It doesn't feel like what we would call real peace or a real relationship. And Jacob and, Enos, Jacob and Esau don't seem to have to repair their relationship, from what I can tell. I read through Genesis trying to see when they meet again, and according to my read, they don't meet again until years later in Genesis chapter 35 at Isaac's death. 
And so I think what the whole point is, Genesis is reporting you about how sin is breaking these relationships. And Luke 15 is Jesus telling you how you can mend them. And Jacob's deception really caused much of this pain. A lot of this was his own fault. And you think back to the Joseph story. Joseph's relationships with his brothers broke when his father gave a garment to his favorite son. That's that story, right? But Luke 15 is a story about the prodigal's father repairing the relationship, and he gives him a garment for what ought to be his unfavorite son. By most accounting of the world, that, they say, that's my good son over there. He stayed, unlike you. But, but that's not what the prodigal son, that's not how the prodigal's father thinks about this sort of thing. Take this back to the context of Luke 15, when Jesus is responding to the criticism of the Pharisees. Favoritism is a big problem in the Genesis account. And I think, in a certain sense, the Pharisees were still thinking in this favoritistic approach. Is that a real word? I know it's a real word. It is now. And I think what they're saying is, but that's the good son, right? The one who stayed in the field, the one who was working for you, that's the good one. It's not fair that you go give this other loser son. That should be your unfavored son. You've gotten it backwards, is what they're arguing. But Jesus thinks you should love both. Because love is not earned at all. That's the problem with the way the Pharisees are looking at this. And if you think about this, this is really kind of intuitive if you have kids. I mean, if one of your kids becomes very, very successful, if I were to ask you, would you love them more? You would say, no, if they became successful, I would love them no more. But if that's true, then the opposite is also true. That if they were not successful, you would love them no less. And that's the problem here is that Jesus loves the sinners no less than the Pharisees, which are actually both sinners, by the way. Because God's love is not based on how good you are, but because of the relationship that you have with him, that you are his. And that's what the prodigal son's father tries to get the older son to see. He's telling him, well, you're always with me. It's not about the things, it's about the relationship that we have. And so Jesus has magnified the love of the father by making the prodigal's mistakes worse. And he has the prodigal have a debt that that prodigal can never repay. And the prodigal's father doesn't ask him to repay it. Reminds me of, Genesis, of Romans chapter 3, verse 5, when it says, Our unrighteousness, is referring to the, the Jews there, Our unrighteousness highlights the righteousness of God. And what Paul's saying there is that if you look through the history of us Jews, it's like we failed God over and over and over and over and over again, and God keeps showing up. And because of that, because of how much of a failure we are, we can see how much God loves us because he stays there every time. And when we got ourselves into a mess that, that the Jews could not get themselves out of, God shows up and does not only his part of the covenant, he did our part too. And so, in a certain sense, I think what Jesus is doing here is that having it where the prodigal's unrighteousness highlights the righteousness of the prodigal's father. And in the story, really, I'd say you and I look more like the prodigal than Jacob. Right? We're more of a riches to rags than a rags to riches story. I remember years ago, we were talking about Luke 15, and Elise made a good point. She said, you know, do you think that maybe the prodigal thought that he could make the money back? Like, I'll, I'll work it off. But the reality is, like, we have a debt that cannot be repaid by us. That's, this is not a workable solution. But the prodigal's father never even expected repayment. That wasn't the point of it. And so I think Jesus is retelling the story of Jacob and Esau to tell us a story of a better love and a better forgiveness that leads to a better sort of relationship. And I think his point is that you and I are supposed to love not like Esau, not like Jacob, not like Laban, 
But like the prodigal's father, which in that story morphs into being a story about how Jesus loves us and about how God loves us. And what that means is that we don't wait for the wayward children to pursue us. We go and we pursue them. And it means that we do not expect gifts from those who have sinned against us. We help the sinners to get back on their feet. And we do not ignore the struggling children, but we give them the attention that they need. And it's only then that we can heal these deep wounds that are caused by sin that affects, affects our lives. And that's the only way that we can actually keep the family together. And so ultimately, this really is a story about how God loves us, and he loves like the prodigal son's father. And if you do not have a relationship with a God like that, or you need help to understand how God loves us, then that's something that we can help with. So if you need help with that, then please come while we stand and while we sing.